The long Venus drought ends now, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. On June 2nd, Jim Garvin and Sue Smrakar received what had to be among the most welcome phone calls ever. The principal investigators of the Da Vinci and Veritas missions were greeted by NASA Science Mission Directorate Associate Administrator Thomas Zerbuchen with this simple message, you're going to Venus. Which means, of course, that we are all going back to Venus. And the European Space Agency made it a hat trick one week later with word that it will send a spacecraft called Envision to our sister world. We are moments away from congratulating Jim and Sue and hearing about their complimentary missions. Bruce Betts will follow up with a Venusian space trivia contest when he joins me for What's Up. It's not in the July 9 edition of the Downlink, but you know I have to salute Virgin Galactic. Spaceship 2, Unity, the same rocket plane I stuck my head into a few years ago on this show, took its two pilots and four passengers on the ride of their lives July 11th. It has been a long, hard climb, but it looks like the era of suborbital human spaceflight for all has finally arrived. I have to qualify for all, of course, since a ticket will set you back hundreds of thousands of dollars. But this is the direct and continuing consequence of ever cheaper access to space. I'm ready to go, as soon as the price comes down by an order of magnitude or two. Congrats to Richard Branson and the entire VG team. I look forward to extending the same congratulations to Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin when the first New Shepard flight to carry humans lifts off on July 20th, which is a pretty good day to make a little more history. Just a little bit farther into space is Mighty Jupiter. The Planetary Society's new album with our favorite Jovian Pictures leads at planetary.org downlink. Astronauts made the first spacewalk outside China's new station on July 4th. The work included installation of a robotic arm. And Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter, completed a ninth flight, breaking its own records for Martian flying machines. The little whirlybird is beginning to do its own genuine Mars exploration. I contacted Sue Smrakar and Jim Garvin within hours of hearing that their many years of proposing missions to Venus had finally paid off. Sue is a senior research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California, and still serves as the Deputy Principal Investigator for the ongoing InSight mission on Mars. She also served as Deputy Project Scientist for the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Jim Garvin is Chief Scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. He had that title some years ago at NASA headquarters and also served as Chief Scientist for Mars Exploration. Some of you may, like me, remember his appearance on The David Letterman Show, Sue and Jim joined me for an online conversation a few days ago. Jim, Sue, at the risk of ruining what's left of my uh, reputation for journalistic impartiality, I want to say, woohoo, this is fantastic. Congratulations to both of you and your teams. Thank Thanks, you Matt. so much. Hey, we're over the Venus. 
<laughs> it doesn't have any moons, so I guess you can't be over its moons. Um, this is just amazing news. As you know, we were all thrilled at the Planetary Society. We're going to get to that third mission, which has also been uh, approved for a uh, second rock for Venus. But we'll, we'll wait a few minutes before we do that. Let me ask both of you, first of all, how you found out that you had made it through the, the discovery program to be selected, green-lighted by, by NASA. Sue, why don't you go first? I got the call. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten both kinds of calls at this point. And um, let me say that this one was vastly better. Uh, so, yeah, you find out 12, 24 hours in advance that you're going to get a call from uh, Sir Buchan in, the, in a time slot. And, it, and I feel like I always have to wait at least at least it's in the second half of that hour. <laughs> So it's always like, oh, <laughs> I have to know, I have to know. Uh, so it's nerve wracking, but uh, this time the wait was worth it. So it was uh, the fantastic call I've been uh, hoping for for a long time now. We'll have to tell Thomas that was just cruel making you wait till the second half hour. Now, so at that point, you didn't know whether the answer was going to be yes or no, red light or green light? Correct. Correct. You're just uh, standing by the phone, pacing. Wow. <laughs> Jim, was that your experience? Let's put it this way, Matt. Um, nerve wracking is not the term. I'm a goaltender in hockey, so I used to get nervous <laughs> before games, you know, little black discs. This was worse than that. Um, and at <laughs> 8.04, um, when the window of time for calling from Dr. Zerbokin was around 8 to, to 9 Eastern, um, I got a call and I thought, well, this is going to be glum news. As always, this is our fourth time trying to send an in-situ mission to Venus. So we thought, well, maybe not. And when he said, well, you're going to Venus, uh, I almost tripped over my dog who sits underfoot of me. Her name is Glenda. She likes, she's the, you know, the good Venus. And yeah, uh, yeah. I was, um, I was literally shocked. I started whooping it up. I, people were texting me left and right. And uh, because, you know, we never dared hope. It's one of those things. So for me, you know, I started to play some, some live, uh, some music in the background to get me psyched. It was a U2 song I like. And uh, I think I think we found what we're looking for. We're going back to Venus. And so oh, man. It was great. Yeah, Jim, you reminded me that the call came at 5.30 in the morning for me. And yeah, I had woken up at 3 o'clock because <laughs> I just couldn't <laughs> sleep anymore. You know, it's like the anticipation was too much. <laughs> this is like the stories you hear about the people who get the Nobel uh prize uh, call at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, depending on their time zone. I suppose in some ways this may be better. This is, you'll be able to enjoy this for, for so many years to come uh, and work toward it for so many years to come. What stage are we at now? We got a long ways to go before we see signs from these missions coming back from Venus, right, Sue? Yeah, uh, we were selected, but to launch two years later. That means we need to uh, go back to the drawing board with our mission planning. And at this point, we're investigating all of the uh, launch opportunities that fall within that slot that NASA headquarters is looking for. And, you know, basically they pushed uh, this out because of their funding profile and, you know, the desire to have many missions going to Venus, which is, is worth the wait. Uh, but um, starting from scratch, so we don't know exactly when we're going to launch uh, other, other than around uh, 2028. And so we're working on our funding profile. So basically, we're getting off to a, a lot slower start than uh, we would have had we gone for the 26th launch. Jim, you're in the same time frame, aren't you? 
We are, um, and there will be a sequence that NASA headquarters will decide. But we had planned for every possible launch to Venus that we could imagine that woman or man would want, because we knew we, we knew there could be uncertainty. So right now, we've we've literally studied every launch from 26 to 33 um, hmm. for Da Vinci, because we didn't know. And so right now, we're looking at a, an option that we had studied in earnest, um, as has as is Sue. That would get us uh, an entry and descent and science and imaging and touchdown in early 31, um, which is consistent with the NASA headquarters guidelines. And we're getting ready for our big, we call it our science optimization risk reduction program. We call it SOAR. And that's going to give us the ability to buy down the risk as we test the first uh, extremely highly instrumented uh, probe to go to Venus in 50 years. So. We've already done testing to Venus temperatures. It's interesting how titanium gets charred at that temperature. Um, but uh, we're going to do a lot more now um, with with the funding that NASA is giving us. So we just can't wait to get started. And we're literally buzzing because eight or nine years goes by pretty fast when you're thinking about Venus. So I've heard from many other PIs. Uh, I, I do want to talk about your spacecraft themselves, uh, and we'll get into a little bit of the detail of that in a moment or two. But I'm just wondering, at this point, have the science packages, have the instruments been locked down? Uh, I mean, that's obviously what NASA approved, or, or is there room still for iterations of improvement on what you'll be taking to Venus? Well, our instruments are definitely locked down. We, you know, we have two instruments and a gravity science investigation, but we do a ton of different measurements with those two instruments. At this stage, we're not anticipating adding additional instrumentation. You know, we, we still have the same funding profile. So that gives us limited ability to uh, do things like that. You know, one of the trades that uh, NASA will have to weigh in on for our upcoming possible launch opportunities is how much excess launch mass we have. Hmm. And so that is something that allows for secondary payloads to come along. You know, there's been um, a lot of work through Simplex to have small payloads. And, you know, the options there have really just exploded both for, uh, you know, useful and interesting science that can be done at Venus as well as other planets. So, you know, personally, I'm hoping that uh, NASA decides to go for one of our opportunities that has a lot more launch mass that could enable additional things to come along. We'll see. We'll see what uh, NASA has up their sleeve. You know, if they want to give us more money, we can always carry more things. <laughs> but within our scope, we can't we can't do that. Jim, I, I saw your thumbs up to uh, having the ability to bring more mass along. Would you both like to bring along some, well, I don't know, CubeSats, other, you know, nanosats, microsats? Well, Matt, first, I mean, our payload is locked down like Sue's, and, and we have two analytical p instruments very similar to those on Curiosity rover, actually going to go on a flying rover to Venus is the way we look at our mission. And those, those instruments are both from the Goddard Space Flight Center and JPL, you know, they're the centerpiece of our mission as we transect that atmosphere. And so those are locked down. We also have a new class of imaging system. We call it our eyes wide open, which will allow us to see Venus below the clouds at scales that will complement, we hope, very helpfully uh, Sue's mission. So we'll see things at scales down to submeters as we come in optically. So those things, the optimization there will be more tailoring our entry profile. But um, we do have... Uh, two remote sensing payloads that will fly on two high visibility flybys of Venus that will give us very unique day side Venus atmosphere views. We expect to do the first ultraviolet hyperspectral imaging to look for mystery absorbers that are really been confounding Venus scientists with one of them. And the other experiment will allow us to make literal movies, kind of like 
Star Trek approaches the Venus in the ultraviolet as we come in, watching the clouds and the absorbers move. Now, our spacecraft, uh, built by Lockheed Martin, will carry us, release our probe, do two-way descent telecommunications to get our, our data set back from the probe entry mission. But then the spacecraft's still alive. We'll have assets on that spacecraft that NASA can choose to use. We can go back to Venus and go into orbit. Mm. We could carry simplex mm -hmm. payloads. We could do other kinds of experiments with the payloads we have that would extend beyond what we've been doing. So like Sue, we would love to carry uh, other payloads, but they're not ours. We also have a student collaboration experiment that um, we're very excited to have over hundreds of students involved that will allow us to make measurements down near the surface of Venus, never before made by a woman or man. So we're trying to, to do our best to open that Venus frontier for everyone. I see that, that both of you are uh, in tight with uh, Lockheed Martin and uh, a lot of other agencies, uh, in your case, Jim, a number of the other NASA centers. Uh, Sue, your mission has a particularly international flavor. Uh, you're working with, what, three other space agencies? Yeah, uh, one of our instruments is provided by the German Space Agency, our, our spectrometer, Venus Emissivity Mapper. Uh, so that's the instrument that is going to allow us to, you know, for the first time, get global measurements of uh, surface composition, particularly around the the iron type of mineralogy that we have on the surface, and, and look for volcanism, recent volcanism, active volcanism, uh, just a ton of exciting measurements. So uh, we have that coming from the German Space Agency, and we're collaborating with their radar group. Uh, it's actually a terrestrial radar group. There have been a lot of collaborations between JPL and this group uh, outside of Munich. We're going to have them help us out with the software, the, the processing, radar processing software, following on for the many interferometric SAR missions that have been flown uh, around the Earth. From the Italian Space Agency, they're a very big partner. They are providing uh, a piece of our VISAR instrument, our, our X-band radar instrument in terms of the electronics. Uh, they're also providing uh, much of our telecom system. They're providing our high gain antenna and the integrated deep space transponder. So they're a very big partner. Uh, and then we have a contribution from the French Space Agency. They are providing part of our telecom system as well. So we have a, a, an international science team as well. And we actually have participation from a couple of the other NASA centers as well on our science team. We have someone from Marshall and someone from Goddard. Yeah, I did see that there was some crossover between your two centers, JPL and uh, and Goddard, on both of these missions. Jim, I also want to note, because I love to mention them, uh, that those cameras, that those four cameras that will comprise uh, the instrument uh, left on your, your orbiter, the orbiter portion of your spacecraft, are going to be provided by uh, uh, Malin uh, Space Science Systems, those people who have done such an amazing job of revealing a lot of our solar system. It's very exciting for me because uh, in graduate school, my one of my best friends is um, is Mike Ravine, who is the lead engineer on the, all of our cameras. And we actually mm. have five cameras. Um, one will be our descent camera, a new yeah, kind of yeah. descent camera that will actually make 3D machine vision views of the surface to complement mm. Sue's global views um, as we measure and infer composition. But also the four cameras on our flyby spacecraft um, are also developed by Mike. And he and I have worked together most of our lives, so it's nice to be going to Venus together and really in that partnership that, that we've been trying to do since 2008. So it's it's been a while. But we also are very excited, Matt, because we have partnerships that are essential to our mission at multiple centers, a key instrument from JPL, 
our tunable laser spectrometer from Chris Webster is part of a centerpiece. Um, our own mass spectrometer built at, at, at Goddard, but also we have strong partnerships with Langley and NASA Ames, um, and a strong partnership with the University of Michigan as part of some of our institute development, as well as other universities that are really integral to our to our overall team. So, and of course, Lockheed Martin provides our critical aeroshell system that allow us to get into the atmosphere of Venus and release our probe, our flying chemistry lab rover, if you will, as we descend through that, that atmosphere um, with eyes wide open. I'm going to follow up on your probe a little bit here before we come back to uh, sue your Veritas uh, spacecraft uh, and talk about that probe. You see pictures of it, artist renderings of it already descending down to the surface. The thing looks like a little pressure cooker to me uh, for good reason, right? Well, our, our probe, which we call our descent sphere, because it's inside of an aeroshell and gets all packaged up, is about a meter in diameter. So she's about the same size as the spherical belly of the Venera landers that went to Venus so successfully mm. um, in the 80s and 70s from the Soviet Union or the then Soviet Union. And she's a titanium pressure vessel aerofaring system with spin vanes around her midriff to stabilize us so we can do the high resolution, high uh, sensitivity imaging. Um, she also has a bunch of different inlets. They're the kind of the, uh, the sniffer system that allows us to sample the atmosphere. We'll make hundreds of measurements and scans of the chemistry of the atmosphere in ways that have never been done before for any planetary atmosphere. The other thing is we've tested a flight test unit of our probe which we're very proud to have shown um, some VITB visitors just a couple of weeks ago, to full Venus conditions. And so when you see this thing up close and you realize how kind of big it is, I mean, she's a beast with, with four primary instruments, a student payload, all this pressure and temperature accelerometers, the telecommunication system, which is a two-way system that we're working on with the Applied Physics Lab. So we'll be upregulating and downregulating our data rates as we descend so we can get the most data back from our chemistry and our imaging experiments. So this probe is the essence of our mission. I, I like to say it uses natural vertical mobility. Uh, you know, <laughs> we fly on Mars, we'll be descending on Venus thanks to the way Venus works. And one of the things the probe will do, Matt, which I think will be exciting for the people of Earth, is we'll experience the changes we hit the supercritical CO2 fluid down nearest the surface. The SUS mission will sense with radar We'll sense that with our probe and for the first time try to understand that because that's something about the Venus atmosphere that's really weird to think about how that gas behaves in a non-ideal way. Obviously, you're going to descend under parachute, but then that parachute is released and the last, what, kilometer or so, you're just in free fall. Why is that? The last 40 kilometers were in oh. free fall. So we will release our parachutes after we ingest the gas samples from the middle atmosphere that will represent the bulk atmosphere when we'll actually ingest and process those, those gas samples to look at the noble gases. You know, who doesn't love the noble gases? But we especially do. And don't forget xenon. I always like to tell kids that. But anyway, um, after we do that, we'll release the parachute and we will free fall, changing velocity from about several tens of meters a second to a final terminal velocity down around 10 or 12 meters per second. That's about as fast as a boat hitting a dock at a speed you'd rather not like, but still um, survivable. So hmm. literally our final five kilometers will be fluttering down, twisting a little bit in the low Venus winds, collecting images and chemistry samples that will tell us about the water history of Venus, the unique surface atmosphere interactions, the surface landscape at scales of submeters, 
We'll make topography maps that we hope will be useful to SUSE mission for calibrating the backscatter of, from their X-band radar, um, which could be a sort of a ground control point. We may even have a radar cross-section that could be seen by SUSE radar. So, oh, wouldn't that um, be something? would be really cool. Um, Can we add a corner reflector, Jim? I know. So uh, that's what people ask me. You know, a spherical probe with spin veins that would scare a dog is not the ideal corner reflector for, for, uh, for radar, unfortunately. But anyway. I'm, I'm just going to throw in that anybody who has uh, seen a lot of uh, sailing ships with uh, little funny little objects up high uh, to, on the mast somewhere, uh, that may have been a corner reflector so that uh, it was make them a little more uh, radar visible. Listen, you, you said it. It has been 43 years since those pioneer probes descended down through the atmosphere, that thick atmosphere, nearly as long since the last of the successful of those Soviet Union missions, those remarkable balloons and landers, those still stunning images that the Venera landers were able to pick up from, from down on the surface. It really does seem like we're long overdue, doesn't it? I mean, the advances in instrumentation must be tremendous. Uh, well, Matt, for me, I mean, I was first introduced to that question by Tim Much and Jim Head in the late 1970s, right after Pioneer Venus did its first probe mission. And they said, you know, we're going to go with a Venus mapper that was then called VOIR. Who doesn't like voir? It turned into Magellan later, but no, no matter, both great names. And I was, I wrote my thesis on that, those data sets from the Soviets. And so we never imagined hmm. going back until really until the community started thinking post-Magellan, what can we do? And we've been trying ever since. So, you know, it's like building a castle in the swamp. It sinks and eventually you get one. But um, but now we have the, the kind of vision systems, the kind of spectrometers, the kind of things to do from orbit that Sue will be doing that are literally, you know, they were unimagined back at that time. So the Venus we saw in the late 70s and 80s that then Magellan mapped is going to just pop. And I promise you, you know, I like to tell the kids, there's a pony in there. Trust me, this will be <laughs> spectacular for all of us. And and thank you. Your Holy Grail reference was not lost on me. <laughs> um, Sue, speaking of improvements in technology, I mean, I think back to the Magellan Orbiter. It had that giant radar dish. I don't see one on Veritas. Is that a sign of how far things have come? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, in the 30 years <laughs> since Magellan, uh, yes, things have come a long way. Yeah, we have just our two uh, parallel radar transmitters and receivers. They both transmit and receive. So, yeah, they're just over three meters long. Uh, you know, we have uh, a separate antenna that will does the communications and then our radar antenna. So, yeah, things have changed just tremendously. The technology is completely different than it was back when Magellan flew. So, yeah, we don't need this enormous antenna in order to get super high resolution data. So, so many things have enabled that, uh, including our onboard processing. For the majority of our data, we get a, a thousand fold reduction in the volume of data before wow. we send it down. Yeah, that's we amazing. can send raw data, but we get, but mostly we send back uh, data that's been compressed by a thousand fold without, without loss. This is part of the technology that's been developed to support, you know, just this, the suite of radar investigations for the Earth that are, you know, doing everything from, you know, mapping topography, but also mapping the ocean surface and uh, so many climate change related investigations. So we've really just, you know, advanced not only in the hardware, but also in the software 
that we'll use to, you know, create this just tremendous global data set. When Magellan flew, the, the topography that we got back was better than we had for most of the Earth. <laughs> so it was just an advance then. And, uh, you know, now uh, we're going to get uh, a similar huge leap forward. That's exactly where I was hoping to go. I, I, I'm also thinking of all the people listening to this as an MP3, which is nowhere near the thousand-fold compression that you're going to be achieving with data coming back from Venus. Is there more you can say about how big a jump this is over what Magellan was able to deliver? Because, of course, I still look at a lot of those Magellan images, and they're, they're pretty amazing still. Sure, sure. So for our topography, we're having a two orders of magnitude, a factor of a hundred better oh, yeah. resolution. So uh, you know, if you if you looked at uh, the island of Hawaii, you know, you would have about twenty five pixels for Magellan. They're they're about you know they range from about twelve to twenty five kilometers in size. So if you looked at Hawaii, you could get the idea that you know maybe there's a couple peaks there. So you know you'd have some sense that there's a a uh, volcano there. But with the data that we'll get from Veritas, we'll see the calderas, we'll see the fault scarps, mm. we'll see individual flows. You know, it, it, the, the resolution, the surface uh, vertical resolution is six meters. So, you know, many of the flows on Hawaii, you can actually see in that scale of uh, topography. And, you know, we really focused on optimizing our topography because radar is fabulous. You know, we, we've learned so much from those images of Magellan, but it's it's an imperfect way to view the surface, you know, and Jim has referenced this. You need to have uh, a so-called dielectric contrast in order to pick out things on the surface. And so, you know, you can have adjacent flows, lava flows that you couldn't distinguish one from another, because if they have basically the same surface roughness, um, you can't see them or you can't see their, their boundaries in the radar. Our, our image data will also be an order of magnitude better, a factor of 10 better than Magellan data and, you know, have really good signals to noise. We expect to see things that we never imagined. You know, we've gone back to Mars many times with an order of magnitude increase in resolution and, you know, similarly for Moon. And every time we've done that, we see things we never imagined were on the surface. There are so many questions that we, you know, of course, want to answer right now, but it's always the discoveries that we just haven't anticipated that will completely revolutionize our thinking about, you know, our sister planet. Maybe this is a good time to bring up how your missions will complement each other. You've, you've already hinted at that, but it sure does seem like the, the sum is going to be greater than the parts. Jim? Exactly. In fact, this is a dream come true, I think, for all of us. I mean, certainly for Sue and I and our teams. But I mean, the, the, the Armada is going to Venus. And, you know, a probe mission can measure chemistry, like a rover mission on Mars can measure chemistry in rocks. We'll be doing it through the atmosphere and inferring composition of rocks. But, but we're only one dimension of the problem. And it has to be integrated into the global perspective. In fact, we hope our probe descent data sets, the imaging ones, composition at meter scale, topography at meter scale from our camera systems, will produ produce kind of training sites that can be fed into Sue's global modeling of the whole planet for one particular region on Venus. So we'll sort of produce the airborne ground truth, you know, mm. kind of like a drone's eye view. Um, so Sue can then extrapolate that over the whole planet. And her topography, I just have to say, exactly as she said, is going to be so important. When we went to Mars, dare we did so with a laser altimeter in the 90s. 
and saw the Mars at that scale that Sue will be getting for Venus, it changed everything, literally everything. And people said, oh, you know, we don't really need that. Well, we did. And now we're going to get it for Venus. Just imagine, there's 450 million square kilometers of real estate to map on Venus. That's a lot of ground to cover. And so we're going to be seeing that third dimension and integrating that story topographically to what we see locally, to the chemistry story about the history of water and the bulk inventory versus the inventory that was lost and the sources of that will couple together to give us this more holistic view of the planet, which is really the way to explore. And we've done that before. Cassini at Saturn, some of the Mars program, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter at Mars, for example. But now we're going to do it at Venus with two missions that will look at the planet and, um, and we'll provide some of the atmospheric boundary conditions and the lapse rate, that temperature variation from the clouds down to the surface. Every 10 meters, we will have that measurement for the first time that will help calibrate some of the emissivity data um, that Sue will be mapping the whole planet with. So. I think there's a lot of incredible natural synergisms that, and we share teammates too, so that will be even more exciting to work together. More from Sue Smirkar and Jim Garvin about their upcoming Venus missions will arrive after this very short break. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Let's talk about some of the other questions, the mysteries that remain about this very strange world and how you hope to illuminate them, uh, in some cases, literally with radar. Sue, volcanoes. You talked about viewing those calderas. Do we have a shot at finding out, finally, if there is active volcanism on Venus? Absolutely. Yeah, we have many different ways to detect change on the surface. In terms of our spectrometer, we do a number of different things. We look for the chemical variations that are a signature of recent volcanism. And that approach was uh, you know, pioneered, shall we say, by the Venus Express mission. Yeah. So we got some hints of that and we'll get, with our spectrometer, it's, it's designed to observe the surface of Venus. The spectrometer that was flown on Venus Express was designed to look at comets for the Rosetta mission. So it was just, you know, incredibly uh, awesome that they were actually able to see the surface of Venus with that instrument. So, you know, we're going to have vastly better signal-to-noise and six channels versus one. So with that, we can look for the chemical evidence of recent volcanism, basically volcanism that's been eruption on the surface but hasn't fully chemically interacted with the atmosphere. Uh, we can look for active volcanism, although, you know, even if we were flying around the Earth, we'd have to be very lucky to see that. Because when flows erupt on the surface, they immediately start crusting over. You know, they, the, the thermal signature goes away rapidly because of the crust that forms on the surface. Now, if it was if it's a lava lake or some crazy uh, thing going on, we can certainly see that. But you just have to get very lucky to see uh, recent or active volcanism. We will also look for water coming out of volcanoes, so near surface water vapor. Again, we would have to be lucky, but. If we see that, that's just a fundamental observation and answers a really big question about Venus. Is there still a lot of water in the interior of Venus? 
So to uh, actually see that coming out of the planet today would say that it has at least as much water in the interior as the Earth, because you need several hmm. weight percent of water in the magma to escape that huge density in the Venus atmosphere. And, you know, we see lavas like that, see outgassing like that for certain lavas on the Earth. So to actually, uh, you know, get that signature, yes, we'd have to be lucky, but it would be a game changer. It says, yes, the interior of Venus is still uh, spewing water today. And then our radar instrument has a number of ways to look for activity too. You know, we will also be comparing our data sets to what Magellan took. You know, we translate from one frequency to the other. There are, there are algorithms to do that, and they've been used effectively on the Earth. So we'll look for uh, changes between uh, Magellan. We'll look for changes between our cycles. And perhaps most excitingly, we will do repeat pass interferometry. So, you know, if you've seen a, a, an image, those very colorful images of, you know, say motion on the San Andreas Fault, where they have, uh, you know, the kind of the rainbow uh, diagram showing the levels of deformation on the surface. That's what we're going to do for Venus. Now, that takes a ton of data, so we can only do them in limited locations. But, uh, you know, we have lots of, uh, of data sets that suggest activity, like the Venus Express, and we'll uh, be acquiring our own data sets. And the community has lots of ideas of things that may be active on the surface. And we're definitely going to be getting community input to um, target this very uh, high uh, value resource. I mean, to see something actively deforming on the surface, that would be just incredibly uh, valuable scientifically and, uh, of course, exciting. This all seems to be evidence for something that I've heard you've said, Sue, which is that if we're going to answer a lot of the questions we have about Venus, we have to look to the interior, which makes me also think of Mars Insight, a mission that you still have a lot to do with. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, that's another mission that was a long time coming. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Very soon, uh, later this month, we're going to get the the first really precise measurements of the interior from Insight are going to be published in Science. So uh, mm. look for those later this month. You know, it'll be just really exciting to get the core size, the thickness of the crust, uh, information about the mantle, and uh, so yeah. You know, we've been trying to be very very careful in uh, analyzing our data because it is noisy. And and when you do seismology on another planet, you really have to train yourself to very carefully discriminate noise from signal. So we've taken our time and we feel very excited and uh, confident about the results that will be coming out later this month. That's exciting. That's something to look forward to. And we follow the InSight mission pretty closely on Planetary Radio and, and throughout all of the Planetary Society's channels. In addition to our two instruments, we have a gravity science investigation. We're going to be measuring the gravity field of Venus much more precisely than we've been able to do in the past by using uh, two-way K-band data, which is more precise than the X-band and S-band that's been used in the past. And let, let me um, stop you for a second. This is using the Doppler changes that have been so useful on a lot of other missions, including by Cassini at, at Saturn. Absolutely, yes. It's almost for free, not quite, but almost for free, and we uh, anticipate getting the first useful measurements of core size, you know, to within about uh, plus or minus, say, 75 kilometers, which allows us to get an idea about the, the chemistry of the core and uh, determine whether it is uh, fully liquid or solid and liquid. And that's just the, the first order information that you need to be able to say, why the heck doesn't Venus have a dynamo? It, it should have a dynamo, right? It should have a dynamo, just like the Earth. It's crazy that it doesn't. You know, we see them at, on on icy moons. We see them at Mercury. Why not at Venus? 
that's a really exciting thing that we are anticipating is being able to better understand the interior structure and refine our measurements of, uh, you know, estimates of, of thickness of the crust and so forth. Jim, I can tell you're in complete agreement because I've seen a lot more thumbs up and a lot of head nodding. Um, we have so much more to learn about this world. For example, might we find out if plate tectonics are at work on Venus as we know they have been on Earth for billions of years? Well, that's actually the job of the Veritas mission with, yeah. with the elegant co uh, correlations of gravity and topography. And, and I suspect Sue's mission will, will resolve that or at least the onset of that. Our job with Da Vinci is to look through the chemical lenses of the story, which are analytical and often definitive. And that's how we've resolved issues about origin of water on Earth, evolution of the water cycle on Mars. We have the tools on Da Vinci to look for the isotopic ratio signatures of recent volcanism through isotopes of helium, for example. We also, using our ultraviolet instrument, our technology demonstration experiment, will be able to look for trace gases in the upper clouds involving sulfur and oxygen and other species that could be indicators of volcanism, as was suggested decades ago. So we'll be able to look for the other side of the chemical puzzle that Sue will look for up close. For me, I mean, the plate tectonic question couples to the role of water in the crust, in the interior, as Sue was getting at. And right now, the Venus atmosphere is relatively water-rich, shockingly, but it's that interplay with the surface. And so the one measurement we have from Pioneer Venus Tom Donahue and people and Dave Grinspoon have been working for decades, showed us the possibility that Venus was possibly a water-rich planet. And so we're going to resolve that by making 10 times better and 10 times the number of measurements to see that story as we transect the atmosphere. And so putting Venus into the question of it being a habitable world for billions of years like Earth is a big part of that, that agenda that will then link it to the history of plate tectonics or mobile lid tectonics, perhaps a better term for Venus, mm. whatever the right term is, Wagnerian or not. Um, so these are all parts of the puzzle pieces that, that in some sense, we named our mission Da Vinci because Leonardo put together puzzle pieces in science, art, technology, and engineering. And we think these missions together, our mission, just because we named it that, are going to do that for Venus. She is a masterpiece. And, you know, we haven't seen anything yet, Matt, seriously. Sue, plate tectonics. I mean, something's going on up there, right? Don't we see some evidence of subduction? I believe we absolutely do see subduction. And it's such an important process to understand because plate tectonics started on the Earth billions of years ago. And we have very little evidence, very little rock evidence from that time period. There's a lot of theories about how plate tectonics started. There's a lot of theories about how subduction starts. But we just don't have the definitive data to uh, answer that question for the Earth. So for Venus, not only is it uh, Earth's twin with respect to its, its size, its bulk density, you know, we think it has, uh, you know, because of its climate change, because of its incredibly hot surface temperature, the lithosphere, the outer strong part is hot today. And that's what was going on in early Earth. So, you know, we have this ability to, you know, go back in time to conditions that were likely present on early Earth. So we can investigate this question. Is there subduction on Venus today? Could it be active? What are the conditions that are allowing that to form? That could be an avenue to understanding how Earth may have started with subduction, how plate tectonics could evolve. And, you know, it, it's these really important questions like what's the role of temperature? What's the role of water? that we need to understand to 
begin to really know how can plate tectonics start someplace else. That's you know we've we've learned so much about its links to habitability on the Earth. As we go to look at exoplanets, we really want to know are they likely to have plate tectonics or not. So we have this real opportunity to be able to understand you know to look for that uh, you know first phase enveloping plate tectonics. And yeah, you know you know, in the topography. If the San Andreas Fault were there on the surface of Venus, we wouldn't see it in the data we have now. But with Veritas, we can really begin to map out the subtle variations in topography that will tell us so much about the tectonic evolution. I latched on to, in particular, one thing you said there, which (laughs) is about learning about exoplanets. And it just seems like, boy, we've got so much more to learn about our own neighborhood if we want to understand what's going on across the galaxy, right, Jim? Well, exactly. In fact, that's one of the emphases of Da Vinci and, and several of our teammates are Deputy PI, Giada Arney, um, Stephen Kane in the University of California. One of the things we want to do is turn Venus into the exoplanet next door as a, basically a, a ground control point or a planet control point for looking beyond. And in the era of James Webb Space Telescope that will be launching this year, we will yes. have the tools to see exovenuses spectroscopically using transited exoplanetary spectroscopy. A lot of words, but the ability to actually tease out chemistry of atmospheres of planets in the Earth-Venus size range and start to explore the evolution of a habitable zone. Da Vinci will provide the measurements from the top of the clouds, ultraviolet spectroscopy, all the way through the atmosphere to look at what an exoplanet next door really looks like, compositionally, spectroscopically, and in terms of its evolutionary history, we may be able to tell the difference between our Venus, this hot climate change run amuck world that Sue was just talking about, that we're going to get to know so well with, with Veritas and Da Vinci and others, compare it to a former state of Venus, like some of the, the modelers are predicting, that might have been a, a much more clement, habitable time with long-lived surface bodies of water. Think of this, Matt. If Venus harbored surface oceans of liquid water for billions of years, why might it not have generated those onset conditions for the chemistry of what we call life? And whether agnostically we explore that or through other techniques, that is a vital question as we look beyond. And to tell that there are other Venuses around stars that we can sense with astrophysical observatories that are in the habitable state, not in the current Venus state, would be a breakthrough. So our team, together with the astrophysics community, of course, are dying to attack that problem and make Venus the exoplanet next door. I'm going to throw in a plug here for last week's Planetary Radio when we uh, visited the James Webb Space Telescope and talked to people like Bill Oakes, the project manager for that that grand instrument that's going to reveal so much. Jim, you have to think after talking about the possibility of past biology on Venus, I'm sure you were expecting this question. I can sum it up in one word, phosphine. Well, Matt, who doesn't love swamp gas? I mean, anyone who's been to a Halloween show and has probably thought about phosphine, but phosphine, which is a a phosphorus hydrogen um, compound, is just one of many of the exotic compounds that could exist in the Venus atmosphere in different amounts, different mixing ratios. The tentative detection or not of that species from elegant Earth-based spectroscopy done by many investigators is is a reminder to us of how much we don't know. We don't even know the chemical context of the atmosphere in which that phosphine could or could not exist. Hmm. So one of our jobs for the community on Da Vinci is to actually produce measurements about the chemical context and 
the chemical cycles of all the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur gases throughout the atmosphere. That context is the context that any chemistry lab experiment would be would be, would take place first before you leap to the question, well, is that phosphine a biosignature? Is it a natural consequence? Many scientists on our team believe there's other phosphorus bearing gases that would be more likely, more abundant, more detectable, and more important. Likewise, those involving sulfur. And the sulfur in the Venus atmosphere, of course, is a very important component, constituent in that atmosphere. So our job is to fill in those chemistry gaps so we can ask questions about the cycles, the timing, connections to volcanism, connections to erosion, connections to change in styles of tectonics, global resurfacing, history of climate states in a climate atmosphere system. All those are big questions. Without the chemical boundary conditions, as with geophysical ones, you can't go anywhere. You can speculate and say, well, if it's like Earth, it's this. If it's not, it's this. We're not going to be speculating after these two missions fly. And we'll be able to ask, is there phosphine? How much? If it's not there, what else is there? What other exotic, exotic molecule that we haven't discovered is there that we need to pay stock to? Phosphine is detectable in astrophysical observatories. Why? It's interesting. But there's others too. So our job is to fill in all of those. Sue, you've called Venus a cosmic gift of an accident. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, there's a great cartoon, uh, XKCD. I don't know if you've oh, ever seen that site. But, uh, My hero. They had this yeah. cartoon, Space Without the Space. Venus is actually 41% of the rocky material in our solar system. Earth is 43, 45%. So, you know, these two planets are the vast majority of the rocky material in our solar system. And, and really no two bodies, maybe other than asteroids, are more similar. They are just this incredible control case of ability to take one hypothesis and apply it somewhere else. And the 30 years since Magellan has gone by, I've never lost interest in Venus because we continually learn new things about the Earth. My view is always, well, okay, so that works on the Earth. Should it work on Venus? And if not, why? It gives us the ability to both explore the early evolution of the Earth through its hot lithosphere today. It gives us the ability to study the climate. You know, it's a place a runaway greenhouse was discovered. People have continued to do things like uh, suggest, oh, we should put uh, sulfur particles in the upper atmosphere to slow down climate change. Venus scientists have come back and said, yeah, that's not going to work because we see that same chemical breaking down in the atmosphere of Venus. So there's just so many synergies, both for understanding the atmosphere, understanding tectonic evolution. And uh, yeah, there, there really you know, aren't any two planets uh, more similar and no place is more similar to the Earth. You know, as we see all these crazy exoplanets being discovered, there's still one, it still is not an exoplanet that is more similar in size and illumination to the Earth than Venus. So it's absolutely the place that we need to go to understand, are we unique? We're still the only place that has life, right, that we know of. And what got us to this point? Venus is the place to go and understand what makes planets habitable and to model the kind of processes that we'll never be able to observe on, on an exoplanet. We have, to, we have to get these models of how rocky planets evolve right by going to Venus and understanding how these two twin planets evolve down different paths. 
an Earth-sized laboratory, and we're finally going back. I have to think that our our co-founder, Carl Sagan, would be very, very proud. (laughs) I promised we would get to that third mission that we learned, you know, barely a week after NASA announced the green lighting of of your missions. The European Space Agency is also going back to to Venus with Envision. Uh, Sue, I saw that your JPL colleague, Scott Hensley, is a project scientist for its radar system. Uh, And Scott is working with you on Veritas, too, isn't he? He's a double project scientist. (laughs) (laughs) What's it going to mean to have yet another, I mean, a third member of this armada, Jim, that you were talking about? Well, for me, it's it's even more spectacular because the complementarity of vantage points taken by Envision with a different type of radar, a polarimetric radar that can see scattering properties that are uniquely um, related to history of erosion, possibly sedimentary processes on Venus, coupled to the scales of observation that will take SUS and magnify them down through the capacity of the, the JPL-provided S-band radar, will be spectacular. Every time we've done that, as Sue mentioned, for Mars, we took the challenge of going from the Mars Global Surveyor Odyssey to Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. People said, you shouldn't do that. Well, we're still doing that, and it's still showing us benefits. Envision will do that, but add to that even more spectroscopy of the atmosphere and the surface. And putting those things together with an additional radar experiment that will do nadir-based sounding, just uh, it's a magical mystery tour. And so my suspicion is by putting together the medley of all three of these data sets, plus others that may come from other nations, Matt, that are being discussed that I suspect will happen, we will see this, this brilliant star next door, the the term Sue used was really so elegant. Venus is the sister we didn't know we lost or had that we better <laughs> get to know because God only knows, you know, um, as, as you can imagine. So I think the interplay and relationships between these missions, the synergies, I mean, Da Vinci will fly by Venus and look for atmospheric phenomena that will be tested in time by Veritas and tested again in time by Envision, starting to connect the time series back to Pioneer Venus Orbiter and of course Magellan, and then Venus Express and Akatsuki. I mean, this this is the way planetary programs are developed, and that builds better understanding. It's not just the sum of the parts; it's much bigger. And when you get all the science communities together, thinking of Venus, that has been difficult without missions, uh, at least in the United States. I just think the prospects for learning will be so great. We'll see the history of habitability in a world next door that can tell us about those things that Sue was mentioning about early early histories of, of, of plate tectonics and other crustal things. And, and let's not forget, Matt, the other distinguishing thing of Venus, tons of the rock record, it also has this massive atmosphere. For a rocky planet to have an atmosphere like Venus takes a lot of work. Mother Nature doesn't mm-hmm. favor that. We need to understand that. And so Envision plus Veritas plus Da Vinci will give us that depth of understanding. So all the kids out there today, those young girls and boys, will have a Venus to study. That's our job, really, to me. Sue, I'm going to give you a chance to get the last word here uh, as you think about what's ahead of us over the next, let's say, 15 years, because that'll get us out there with all three of these spacecraft and probably terrific science being returned. An absolute revolution in our understanding of rocky planets. Well said. Thank you both. Congratulations again. As you can expect, the Planetary Society, this show, I hope, will be carefully following uh, the progress of both of your efforts. And I I look forward to checking in periodically to see how things are coming along. And then, of course, to uh, 
the arrival at Venus of, uh, of your spacecraft. Thank you so much, folks. Thanks, Matt. We're delighted to be here. And what a, what a ride it's going to be. Absolutely. It's been fabulous. Da Vinci Principal Investigator Jim Garvin and Veritas Principal Investigator Sue Smirkar. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. That is the astronomer and scientist and <laughs> project manager Bruce Betts. Welcome back. I saw Venus. It was You couldn't miss it. <laughs> I think I, I think I had a Venus shadow. Man, it was bright. Yeah, it's uh, it's impressive. Brightest natural object in the sky besides that pesky moon and sun. So what else is going on up there? Well, let's start with Venus. Uh, you can everyone can participate in seeing Venus, but you need to look in the early evening over in the west, fairly low to the horizon. But as Matt just said, he was surprised by how high up it was. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. But still, look in the early evening, fairly low in the west. Mars is still very close to Venus, a little bit below it, and much dimmer, over 100 times dimmer. Looking reddish, tough to see, and it's going to drop away within days, basically. Venus will drop away, but it'll take weeks, and uh, it's really easy to see, as you saw, as you see, I saw, seesaw. I love seesaws. <laughs> we should do a show about that. We should record <laughs> what's up while on a seesaw. On a seesaw, yeah. <laughs> All right, make a note of that. Okay, coming up now in the just the mid-evening, the 9, 10 p.m. kind of range over in the east, you got really bright Jupiter into its upper right yellowish Saturn. And the moon will be hanging out between them, roughly, on July 24th. Good evening. Start with Venus in the early evening, catch Jupiter and Saturn in the mid-evening. We move on to this week in space history, which, oh, everything happened this week in space history. That is not true, but it's it's funny how there are some weeks that are a little thin. This week I'm going to do five things in a row quickly, uh, and I'll still miss some. So we got 1965. Mariner 4 does the first ever flyby, successful flyby of Mars. There's that, what is it, Apollo? Um, oh, yeah, the, the one with two ones. Yeah, 11. Yeah, they did something in 1969. All right, first humans to walk on the moon, 1969. <laughs> uh, 1975, Apollo Soyuz launched and uh, connected in space. 1976, Viking 1, first uh, really successful Mars lander. Whew, I'm just going to do one more. 2015 first Pluto flyby by New Horizons. And he could go on. I could, but I'm not going to because we also need to get to space back. I like that. I like that. The range of your vocal talent there is fantastic. Oh, thank you. So it's well known. In other words, Matt knows it, that the Soviets <laughs> had several Venus successful Venus landers. But did you know the U.S., has had a Venus lander. What? Although somewhat unplanned as such. Pioneer Venus Multiprobe, which has two other names, Pioneer Venus 2 or even Pioneer 13, was launched in 1978. It had four probes uh, that were atmospheric probes designed to study the atmosphere. But two of them actually survived landing. One of them transmitted data for over an hour. You know, I think I read that somewhere, but I forgot. Otherwise, I'd have mentioned it to Jim Garvin because uh, we talked about the Pioneer Multiprobe. And that, but wow, that's just incredible. I mean, they weren't designed to do that, were they? 
No, they were designed as atmospheric probes, and they actually hit pretty hard, pretty darn hard. And uh, <laughs> so it's even more amazing. It was one of the, the small ones that survived for a while. Hmm. So there you go. On to the contest, and we have some fun stuff that some of you folks submitted. I thought we might. I asked you, who was the first, and I think only, married couple to fly together in space? How do we do? I begin with this from Rod Sandry in Australia, who uh, chastises you somewhat, Bruce. He says, Bruce, the Google gods had this one figured out 248 million times in six-tenths of a second. I am not going to earn a degree in space trivia contest when you make it easy for us. Oh, wow. (laughs) I think it's just fine that you made this fairly easy. I think it's great. Try to mix it up, and I I get in trouble when they're too easy with some listeners and trouble when they're too hard with others. So we'll just I'll just keep asking them and uh, hopefully most of you will be sort of happy. I think you're in the sweet spot. And I know Louis Igo was in the sweet spot. This is going to make those of you out there who keep entering every week and have not yet been chosen by random.org, it's going to make you a little crazy. His first time entering from Minnesota And he got it right, I believe. He says that that married couple, Mark Lee and Jan Davis. That is correct, on shuttle flight STS-47. Which was quite a flight, as we will uh, learn in moments, if you don't already know. Congratulations, Lewis. You are going to get that stunning Planetary Radio t-shirt. And uh, we will uh, get that into the mail to you from chopshopstore.com real soon. A lot of people mentioned the uh, Russian who, it was sort of a half marriage that took place in space uh, because he was the commander of Expedition 7 on the ISS when he married his wife, Ekaterina Dmitrieva, via video link. Uh, Edwin King was one of those who submitted that, Edwin in the UK. Here is a portion of a poem submitted by Gene Lewin in Washington. And then there's Yuri Malachenko, while during his Expedition 7 shot, married his love back here on Earth and literally tied the Cosmonaut. (laughs) I thought you'd like that. Well played, well played. (laughs) Cosmonaut. Uh, Nate Heathcock in Florida, he says it was Barney and Betty Hill. Do those names mean anything to you? Uh, lost in space? You're close. You're very close. I remembered this, but I had to check it just to make sure my memory was correct. He says, I couldn't resist one with the 60th anniversary coming up on September 19th. Loves the podcast. Barney and Betty Hill were the first two people, married couple, who claimed to be abducted by aliens. So yeah, kind of <laughs> lost in space. <laughs> okay, kind of glad I kind of glad I didn't know that. But now I do. So like you said, STS-47, big deal. Mae Jemison was on board. Also the first Japanese astronaut, Mamoru Mori. It was commanded by Hoot Gibson, who also married an astronaut, Dr. Rhea Seddon. Uh, that came from Martin Hajoski in, in uh, Texas. Mark Little in Northern Ireland says there are, are or were seven U.S. married a- astronaut couples. He adds, Cupid's arrow can achieve orbital velocity, it seems. (laughs) 
Joseph Poutre in New Jersey. Did Flash Gordon ever marry Dale Arden? He's thinking the first married couple uh, depicted in space were the Jetsons. <laughs> okay, we need to really work on separating reality from fiction. <laughs> Finally, this contribution from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Davis and Lee were the first married couple to fly into space as a pair. NASA found out they were secretly married a few weeks before they went there. But NASA, however, up there on Endeavor, placed one on the red team, one blue. You may try to prank us, but you don't outrank us, so we're going to chaperone you. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting was uh, they apparently were secretly married weeks before, which NASA had a rule against flying married couples together. But they were allowed to fly together because it was so close to the mission at that point that they, they flew and were put on different shifts. Well played, you two. Did they tie the Astro knot? <laughs> Sorry, I can't get enough of that. That's derivative. That's that's a gene. You get double. We'll give you double royalties this week, Gene. Okay, oh. for the, for that, that was two naughty jokes. Uh, we're ready to go on. Talking Venus. You like talking Venus. You just talked Venus. What was the first successful Venus orbiter? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. First successful Venus orbiter. You have until Wednesday, July 21st at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And here's a nice prize for uh, somebody out there. Sarah Stewart Johnson. Remember her, the great conversation we had with her about her book, The Sirens of Mars? The paperback version is about to come out. It's about a week away as we uh, record this uh, from Crown, Crown Publishing. And you're going to get a copy of the Sirens of Mars, if you uh, get away with being the winner of this week's brand new contest from Bruce. That's it. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about cheese. Thank you, and good night. Just last night, there were people eating pie. We were watching the show Atypical, and uh, they, they're constantly eating pie in that show. And now, I, I've, ever since then, I really have wanted apple pie with a slab of cheddar cheese. Doesn't that sound good? I don't know. Are you a cheese and pie guy or are you an Alamode person? I'm an Alamode person. When when uh, when the option of ice cream presents itself, uh, always take it. <laughs> uh, otherwise, cheese is good. That's Bruce Betts. Nothing cheesy about him. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up. And I must acknowledge the wonderful pun that you made last week, which I let slip by, his locks that he would give up for rocks. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its hotter-than-molten-lead members. Join them at planetary.org join, and please, for me, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.